You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to the latest installment of SpyCast. To coincide with the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we'd like to present to you a trilogy of interviews with intelligence officers who found themselves on point as presidential daily briefers on the day of. Now, the president's daily brief has been called the most tightly controlled daily document in the world. It's a daily summary of high-level, all-source information and analysis on national security issues produced for the president and key cabinet members and advisors. We've got three presidential daily briefers for you. First up, Mike Morrell. Mike at various points in time was acting director and deputy director of CIA. But on the morning of September 11th, 2001, he was with George W. Bush in Sarasota, Florida. Then uniquely 10 years later, he was with President Barack Obama for the Obatabad raid. I'm just going to read out a brief part of my conversation with Mike. I believe that when we get to the end of the trail, we're going to find Al-Qaeda and we're going to find a Osama bin Laden. I told him that I was so confident in that judgment that I would bet my children's future on it. If you want to hear more about what Mike had to say, please listen to the interview. Next up is Dave Terry. Dave started the job on the same day as Mike Morell but he was the presidential daily briefer for Vice President Dick Cheney. After that, he went on to be the chief of the presidential daily brief. Now, on the morning of September the 11th, Dave recollects, I think that for any intelligence officer, what you're doing is often overwhelming, whether you're in front of the president or the vice president or an asset or your colleagues, and the stakes are often life or death. Next up, we have Kristen Wood. Now, Kristen was the presidential daily briefer for the vice president's national security advisor, Scooter Libby, and she often briefed the vice president himself. She went on to hold a number of leadership roles at the CIA, but she recollects, knowing that every day you had to deliver relevant information to the nation's leaders 
is a feeling of enormous responsibility. All of the thousands and thousands of intelligence officers who have done amazing work, you want to represent that faithfully. Ask questions so that you can go a little bit deeper, but also remain a neutral, balanced party. Joining Kristen was a special guest, Phil Mudd. He was part of a small diplomatic team that helped to piece together a new government for Afghanistan in late fall, early winter of 2001. He was second in command for counter-terrorist analysis in the Counter-Terrorism Center, and his most recent book is Take Down, Inside the Hunt for Al-Qaeda. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to Kristen and Phil bouncing off of each other, two former colleagues and friends, as much as I did. Please consider the trilogy as a whole, listen to them, think about them, mull them over. This is history. These are three people that were actors in it, and we are proud to present them to you. Thanks. Take care. Bye. So I think that before we get to the day of 9-11, how did you find yourself in the world of intelligence and espionage, Dave? Well, it's kind of a strange story. First of all, Andrew, thanks for having me here today. Absolutely. And uh, it was a strange story. I was hired in 1979 to do all things monitor grain production. And in the 1970s, the Soviets had basically stolen a bunch of U.S. grain. I call it the great grain robbery. They had lied about their own crops. They had lied about how much grain they wanted to buy from the U.S. and basically bilked the U.S. out of a lot of money. So the White House decided that the intelligence community should determine how much grain the Soviets and the Chinese were going to purchase and trade. So my job as a new hire was to model Chinese grain production and trade. And so with a lot of help from folks up in space and on the ground and so on, within a couple of years, we modeled their grain production and trade and knew what the Chinese were going to produce before they did. That really helped once the Chinese knew that we knew what they were going to buy, that they would stop meddling in U.S. commodity markets. For the communist bloc, the Soviet Union, the Chinese, since they hated market capitalism, to try and screw up U.S. markets was a good thing to them. So it was a, not a very sexy thing to start off with. Uh, <laughs> and I think your listeners would probably be surprised at the very mundane things that the intelligence community does. The intelligence community is supposed to provide insight and help and warning on decisions for U.S. consumers. And policymakers make lots of mundane decisions on things and like grain production and trade terms and lots of things that are far less sexy than James Bond, the nuclear <laughs> launch codes and terrorist attacks. So this would have been probably before, I'm guessing, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan? But right about the same time. They invaded in 1979. Yeah, it was the December of 79, right? So like what month did you join the... April of 1979. April. So you find yourself in intelligence. Obviously, you must have done a lot of things between 1979 and, and September 11th, 2001. But give us a sense of how we get to 2001. Well, I started with that and then did other economic accounts, being an economist by trade, and then basically moved on from economics to political, military, S&T affairs, and so on, counterintelligence, and was chief of the Africa Division in 1999, and was happy doing that. When I got a call late one Friday afternoon, and they said, can you come up to the deputy director's office? Well, how do you answer that call? Yes, of course I can. You want me now? I'm on my way. And the conversation was fairly short. They said, we'd like you to consider becoming a briefer for Vice President-elect Cheney. 
And we know you didn't apply for this. There was a vacancy notice process. You didn't wish to be this, but we'd like you to think about it. Go home, talk to your family, think about it over the weekend. Come back in and let us know Monday. But you need to move fairly quickly because you're starting Wednesday. Obviously, it was a bobblehead decision that I, yes, I'm going to do that. So I started briefing Vice President Cheney before the inauguration, and that's where I was still on 9-11. How does one get selected for that? I mean, that must have been an honor. I'm assuming they don't just pick a random name out of a hat. There must have been something about you that they saw that they wanted to utilize. I think I was foolish enough to say yes, okay. <laughs> uh, because as you know from your previous podcast, Briefers are those unfortunate souls who come in at O Dark 30 and prepare to help their consumers. And it, it's a long day, generally starting at like 1.30 in the morning, and mine generally went till 3 or 4 in the afternoon to try and get them ready for their day. So I think part of it is they look for people they can trust, that if they mess up, they're going to say they mess up, uh, they're going to work hard. And then one comment was made that Vice President Cheney and I both wore cowboy boots, and they thought that we would mesh, not only with our boots, but with our personalities and so on. So you do try and find people that you think, in terms of personalities and interests, will mesh. On that point, where were you born and raised? Were you born and raised out west somewhere? Or? I was born and raised on a ranch, not out in the middle of nowhere, but you could see it from there, in west central Kansas. Okay. Wow. Which also helped in terms of when they were looking for a person to help model agricultural production. One of my degrees was in agriculture, and so... That gave me a leg up on that first job. What was your background before you came to intelligence? You spoke about one of your degrees being in agriculture. Give us a sense of your development, so to speak, before you joined the CIA. I went to Kansas State University and got a degree in economics and then in agronomy. And it was basically trying to estimate the productivity of Kansas soils, what they would yield and so on. So that's basically then what I did for China. Okay. So 1979, you joined the CIA. 1999, you get tapped to be a presidential daily briefer. Walk us through that period. You begin briefing Vice President Cheney or before he's Vice President-elect. And then walk us through that period leading up to the day of September 11th, 2001. So my normal day, starting about 1.30, would be to go into Langley, the CIA headquarters, and look at the vice president's schedule. What's he got on the calendar that day, that week, his upcoming trips, the things of long-term interest to him, and also things that I thought he might not be aware of. The hardest job of being a briefer is picking what you're going to show them, because if they don't know about it, they're not going to make a decision on it. You have very limited time. And so the hardest thing is prioritizing all of that, and that's what takes the time. So it's pulling all of that together and... Vice President Cheney is scary smart and would ask all kinds of questions. And so trying to be prepared to answer those questions so we wouldn't have to get an answer the following day. That's another difficulty of being a briefer is trying to be up on what they're interested in. So that was my one goal and focus was to try and meet his needs. And he also chose as the first vice president to do so that he wanted me to travel with him. So unless he went off on a little short day trip, wherever he went, I traveled with him so he could get continuous intelligence support wherever he was. For a lot of our listeners, there will be some that have the background that you have, but the vast majority will be like, wow, what, you know, that must be intimidating waking up and having to brief the person that's one heartbeat away from the presidency. Do you feel like all of your previous experience had set you up for that so that it wasn't overwhelming or 
Help our listeners understand how you kind of dealt with all of that. It was overwhelming. And I think for any intelligence officer, what you're doing is often overwhelming. Whether you're in front of a president or a vice president or your asset that you're trying to debrief or your colleagues where you're trying to explain something that you think is really important. And the stakes often are life and death. Not always. Sometimes they're markets and sometimes they're mundane, but they're pretty high or the CIA and the intelligence community wouldn't be looking at them. But what you have to do, I think, is just focus on the mission. Why am I here? And focusing on the mission does a couple of things. First of all, it's a great motivator. And second, it's a great, helps you prioritize things because a lot of things don't matter. Your personal reputation doesn't necessarily matter. You don't want to ruin the reputation of the intelligence community or the agency or department that you're from. But basically, your job is to help them make decisions, provide insight to help them do their job. And that's what's most important. The other thing that helps is you've got scores of people behind you who are experts and who help you prepare. So in one sense, as a briefer, I was really only a delivery boy. I was picking things from some of the smartest people in the world who were packaging things, trying to figure out what's going on on their particular account, why that's going on, what that means, and what might be done about it. So in that sense, you, if you can't answer something, you can go back to the experts who can. Just for our listeners that aren't familiar with the Presidential Daily Brief, can you just walk them through just the kind of Cliff Notes version? It's informing, it's not presenting options, it's help them understand the type of product we're talking about. That is somewhat of a debate among the intelligence okay. community, <laughs> always has been and probably always will be. So it's designed for the president and as each president changes, the president's daily brief will change. President Reagan, not surprising, liked videos. He came from Hollywood. President Carter, because he was an engineer, liked the right-hand side of the page to be blank so he could take notes. And so it varies. President Bush, that is George II, came in with Vice President Cheney, was informed by his father, George I, who was head of the CIA, that he needed to take an intelligence briefing and he needed to get it directly from the intelligence community. And so he told Vice President Cheney, before he was vice president, when he was head of the transition team, make sure my son gets a briefing, make sure he gets it directly from the intelligence community. And that is a real advantage when a president sits down directly with their briefer, because you get to hear their response and you get to discuss it with them. And I think much better for them. So imagine, Andrew, if you sat down and read the Washington Post today, you would get a lot out of that. If you sat down and discussed it with the editor of the Washington Post, who had talked to all of the stringers and all the authors and so on, you'd get a lot more out of it. And you'd get something different than if you sat down and talked with one of the political pundits who had a, an ax to grind and a particular line to push. That's why he wanted the PDB to be presented by the intelligence community, not by the National Security Advisor, who has kind of a bent toward making sure the policies that he's promoting gets there. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's just a different, perhaps less objective view of the world than the intelligence community would give. So the PDB is designed as a personal document for the president. So often the vice president, secretary of defense, secretary of state will see all of the things that the president sees. And it's the president's prerogative as to who he wants to see the president's daily brief. But generally those briefers will add additional things. So I would add things for Vice President Cheney in terms of his upcoming trips, things that he was interested in that the president wasn't interested in. He kind of took the point in the war on terrorism. So I would often give him more counter-terrorist things than the president got. So it's really a customized thing to help them make decisions for their particular account. 
And just in terms of the information that gets presented to them, I guess the question is, do you do it more like, say, Google or some other browser that is anticipating the sites you normally go to and the things that you like? You present the customer with their interests and to what extent as a, do you know what, this is not something that the vice president is interested in, but it's important and he needs to know it. So it has to go in, like help us understand that trade-off. So knowing them and what they're interested in is key, but the analysts who are the real experts fed by the operators who are also experts, the analysts will submit articles for presentation to all the senior consumers. So the briefer for the secretary, in, in those days, they didn't show the same thing. So the briefer of the secretary of state might pick a piece. The secretary of state was interested. Secretary of defense, the briefer wouldn't. And so you customize it and pick pieces written by the experts that you think will resonate. And the debate on those often is, we refer to the debate about options and so on. You certainly want to tell them what's going on, why it's going on, what it means. What does it mean for economically, politically, and military, for our enemies, our allies? What does it mean for the future? That's all fair game. The real debate comes with, do you also then provide them options or recommendations? Well, everybody agrees, not recommendations. So options are the tricky part. And a lot of people say, well, we shouldn't present options because A, we're not very good at it. B, they're very hard because these issues, many of them are almost intractable issues. If they were easy, the policymakers would have solved them on their own. They wouldn't be needing the intelligence. But I will give you my personal bias, and that is we should give recommendations. We should could give options, excuse me, not recommendations, but give options. So, for example, if you went to your doctor, the doctor would be very useful if they said, if we don't treat this, this is what will happen. If we give you this medication, Andrew, this will be the result. If we do surgery, this will likely be the result. And you still get to decide whether you're going to take the surgery or the medicine or nothing. But giving those options really helps. In the same way, giving policymakers options is if we leave them alone, this will be what that country likely will do. If we sit down at the negotiating table, this will likely be the outcome. If we go to war, this will likely be the outcome. What you don't want to do is, therefore, you need to nuke them, Mr. President. You want to get the recommendations because you are not elected. You're not hired to do that. You need to be objective and give the information. But I found, particularly in the war on terror, that providing options was very useful because sometimes you would provide options they had not thought of. And the intelligence community, particularly CIA, became very tactical in the war against terrorism. And often the options would have been carried out by the CIA. And so talking to the operators and asking, well, you know, could you do this? Could you not do that? And so on became very useful to lay out to the consumers. Here are some options. And the operators think they can do this. They think they might be able to do that and so on. So I, I believe that options are a good thing. Yes, doctors don't give great options sometimes on some diseases because they're very hard and they're not very good at curing it. That said, I still want options. So you would provide options regularly for the vice president? Correct. And so you started in 1999. When did you stop uh, briefing Vice President Cheney? Yeah, for about 18 months. 18 months. And is that one of those things where you hear about these jobs in Washington where people say you just do this for 18 months, two years, and then you collapse in a heap? And then someone new comes along and does it like you can only do it for a certain amount of time. That's one of those jobs. Yeah. And that basically you set your personal life 
aside for that period of time because you're getting six or sometimes seven days a week. You're starting at one thirty in the morning and going till 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. So you go to bed at 7 at night or whatever. It gets tiring after a while. I mean, it struck me that for the people that are delivering the presidential daily brief to the vice president and the president, those are like obviously two of the most high profile positions and the the CIA. Um, to what extent, like either with you or historically, do you get micromanaging directors of central intelligence that are like, tell me what you're going to present to the vice president today and make sure that you do this? Or is someone leaning over your shoulder trying to push you in one way or another, someone spiking your copy, or do you have autonomy, or is it a little bit of both? Generally, you had great autonomy in what you presented. Once in a while, someone would come in and try and influence, because they knew it would go directly to the desk. For example, one day, late in the day, someone came in and said, oh, the vice president asked for this. And so I said, okay, I'll deliver it tomorrow. So I delivered it, and he read it, and I said, you'd ask for this, and he read it, and he said, well, I didn't ask for it, but I think I know who did. Someone asked for it, saying that he tasked it because it was their pet issue. They wanted to get their pet political issue in, in front of him. That was someone from downtown. And occasionally, you'd get people who, one operator once said, well, we need to write a piece for the PDB that says this, so the president will authorize these operations. And of course, that is way off the table. So occasionally, you get people to try to use them for political or career or empire building purposes, <laughs> but uh, it, it never worked while I was there. And just for on the logistics of it, how does it normally go? Does the person that's given the PDB to the vice president, do they, does the agency like get them a place up near the Naval Observatory or do you just live where you normally live and commute in? or like, Live where you normally live, yeah, okay. come in. And then you are driven, you have a car and driver who takes you down there because you both for security reasons and because sometimes you will end up having to go with them wherever they go. Okay, that's good. You don't need to pay for uh, surge pricing <laughs> on Uber or something, right? I mean, that's really interesting. I think it's a little bit further on, but to what extent was Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Afghanistan on your radar? As someone that studied a lot of the Soviet-Afghan war, you hear people saying that talking about Afghanistanism, where it's kind of a, an obscure thing that a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to. It's very esoteric. And I remember a few years ago interviewing the person that was on the Afghan desk, and they said to me, no one was more surprised than me to suddenly find myself at the center of all of these events because this was the place where your career went to die. This was the graveyard of CIA career. So help us understand what was your radar like in the lead up to those events? We knew that bin Laden was after the United States. And we knew that he wanted to strike the United States. In fact, the one PDB that has been declassified was the August 6, 2001 PDB. And the title was something like Bin Laden Determined to Strike in the U.S. So we knew what he was coming. And I think that was the 36th PDB that the president and vice president saw in 2001. The difficulty was we didn't know who or how or where he was coming. So analyzing counterterrorist plots, and I later managed the analysts doing all the counterterrorism analysis at CIA, it's very difficult because you get little pieces. It's like, here's a financing, the terrorists are doing financing on this, and here's some buying some explosives. Is, is that the same plot or is it a different plot? It's like somebody took puzzle pieces from several different jigsaw puzzles, 
took a few of them out of each of the box and put them all in one box for you to sort out. Well, you know you don't have most of the pieces of any of the pictures. And you know that some of the pieces are changing because the plots are changing. And you know that some of the plots will be dropped. So a lot of the pieces in the box don't even matter. And some of the pieces may be fed with disinformation for you. So it's very difficult to put together all of those plots. And that was where we stood before 9-11. And you couldn't shut down the entire United States because we could have stopped airplanes, but you'd also want to stop trucks and trains and ships. It's kind of like the discussions that have been held in the last year about COVID-19. Which parts of the economy do you shut down at great cost to try and defend things? And so one of the senior officials said once, well, okay, I've got it. I know they're coming, but what do I do? And so counterterrorism analysis, I think, is extremely difficult. I've managed all types of analysis. I think counterterrorism is the most difficult because a lot of its intentions, Al-Qaeda was very good about communication security. They had very few people who knew everything. They were very compartmented. They allowed the field commanders to determine when the attacks were to occur. And our old saying was, if we were listening to the plot, we would probably be the third person in the room. And so that's why it was very difficult. And in fact, it was a surprise to me how effective it was, just in terms of it was cruel but effective. But I was not surprised that they were coming after us. I never realized that you were also the director uh, for Africa. And I'm just thinking now, you know, when you took over that job in 1999, not long beforehand, Osama bin Laden had been in Sudan and we have the embassy bombings, the USS Cole. Um, so there's yeah, was, yes, I was in the African division when the embassies were bombed. Osama bin Laden was and Al Qaeda were on your radar then. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's quite interesting. Can you tell us anything any more about that? About your time at Chief of the Africa Division? I guess the role that you were in then informed what you went on to do afterwards because you were there when the embassy bombings happened and so forth. I mean, what was it like to be the head of the Africa Division when the embassy bombings took place? Well, Africa in the 1990s, not only in the Tanzania and Kenya, was just a hectic continent. And there was a lot going on. There was a nation imploding or exploding about every other day. And so I did learn a lot about crisis management, about uh, dealing with disasters and so on, because we would have embassies that were under fire, having to evacuate, a, a lot of those things. And Africa was very difficult because sometimes I had more countries than I had analysts to watch it. It was a difficult target and a different target. But when the embassies were struck, it was very difficult. I still remember calling a family saying we couldn't find their child and uh, still hunting for them. And it was just a very difficult time. What is it like to be the head of the Africa division? You have one analyst that works on one country and you try to cover as many of the countries as you can, or is it thematic or is it a little bit of both? Well, Nigeria and Egypt are huge and important. So we've got three analysts on them each, but there's one that does Senegal and you know Benin and a bunch of other places. How does it all shake out? Very good. That's exactly the way it works. So the big countries like South Africa, Nigeria, they would have more than one analyst on them. For the little countries where there were less U.S. policy issues, then you'd have one analyst with several countries, always with another analyst backing them up in case they were on leave or sick or whatever. But yeah, it was basically global coverage is much different than counterterrorism where you had many people working on an issue. 
similar to the Soviet Union in the, in the Cold War. Let's walk up to the day of 9-11. So help listeners put themselves in your shoes that morning. Dave, where were you? How did you first hear the news? What were your emotions like as an American, as a you know family member, as a patriot? Yeah, help us understand what it was like to be Dave Terry on the morning of September 11th, 2001. Well, I must admit, when you first asked if you could interview me about 9-11, I said yes with mixed emotions because there were a lot of emotions that day and they were not mixed. It was an ugly day. I started the briefing at 7 o'clock in the vice president's mansion, as I did all days, and I had to get done by 7.40 in order to get him in the limo so the Secret Service could get him to the White House where he had the intelligence briefing with the president at 8 o'clock. So I was already done with the vice president by the time the first plane went in, which I think was at about 8.46. And I was already back at Langley. And I don't think one of the things we've covered in previous podcasts is what briefers do after the briefing, which is also important. The briefers get back and they type up what it was that they showed the principal and their reactions just for their own edification. And often then they will give guidance. Well, the, the vice president was very interested in this piece that covered topic A for this country. I think you should do a piece that covers B and C. Uh, that would play well. Or, you know, the briefers sit down and say, well, three of our principals got confused in the third paragraph of this piece. We need to get another piece that sorts it out. The other big thing you do is the taskings and the questions that they ask. Vice President asked a lot of penetrating questions. He was hard to keep up with. So if he would ask a question, I would look up the answer. Or more likely, I would talk to the expert somewhere in the intelligence community who would give me an oral answer or write a written reply that I would deliver the next day. So I was in the midst of writing all of that up when the first plane went in. I stepped out of my office. So I remember standing there with the other briefers in the common area and watching it on TV. Everyone assumed that it may have been an accident, and that was what they were assuming on the TV as well. But it was a bunch of intelligence officers standing around scratching their head. And uh, how often does this happen? Where did this flight come from? And at that point in time, they didn't know that one of the stewardesses had called in and said they had been hijacked and didn't know any of that. But intelligence officers, as you know, Andrew, look at the world through dark lenses. And it's not just because they're wearing sunglasses. They always look for malintent and malintentions everywhere. Why would this nation do that? Why would that leader say that? And so that's the way they look at things. The glass is always half empty. Just a little advice for your listeners, too. Never date and certainly never marry anyone from the intelligence community because that negativity carries over in their personal life as well. You know, they'll be sitting there, now my significant other told me twice today that they love me. And that seems a little too hard. You know, what's going wrong? And so anyway, they're just very questioning people. And so the analysts, excuse me, the briefers were sitting around kind of scratching their heads. This doesn't look like an accident. But I went back and continued to do their feedback and their tasking. And then about, if I remember correctly, 9.03 when the second plane went in, obviously it was an attack. And I must give the CIA leadership credit for thinking quickly and acting quickly. Because shortly after the second plane went in, a guy came down to my office and said, okay, we're obviously under attack. So shut down. Don't do any more taskings and feedback. Take what you need. Go down the stairs, because we were on the seventh floor, and go home, pack a bag, and wait for further instructions. And he told me to pack a bag because the assumption was, for continuity of government reasons, if we were under attack, not all of the principals were, wanted to be in the same 
town in case it was attacked. And so I packed a bag and the rest of the day was very frustrating. As I left the headquarters going down the stairs, I tried to call when I got out of the building, my family locally couldn't reach them. Finally got a hold of my parents in the Midwest for somehow those phone connections worked, but they were overloaded in the Washington area. And I went home, spent the rest of the day trying to sleep, but unable to do so. I kept being drawn to the television. And I just sat there feeling so helpless because I couldn't do anything. And I would check in or the headquarters would check in with me periodically to give me updates on where I thought I would be operating, doing the briefing from the following day. And it was just a very, very long, frustrating day. And then along about, I think, 11.15 or so on the night of September 11th, I headed back into the office to begin preparing for the briefing on September 12th, knowing it was going to be a very tough briefing. And trying to sort out all of what happened, who the perpetrators were, what our allies are doing, what our enemies are doing. And the other thing that happens occasionally is you try and also figure out what other U.S. agencies and departments are doing. Now, that is not within the intelligence community's purview. And we don't spy and collect intelligence on that. But if you're supporting a decision maker, they need to know what else is going on in the U.S. as well. So to the extent you can, you try and figure that out and put that in there as well, because that helps them make decisions. You're not designed to be an information service. You're designed to help people make decisions. So I was trying to fit all of that together. And often the biggest intelligence gap we have is what's going on in our own government. So putting that together for September 12th, vice president came down early, as I thought he would, and I asked for my car and driver early. He came down before 7. We went through the briefing as much as we could, and then I got him in the limo. Actually, he asked me to come in the limo with him because if we weren't done with the briefing, the standard practice was to get in the limo with him. That would give us another 9 to 11 minutes of time together, depending on which way the Secret Service would go. That day, unfortunately, it went much faster than 9 to 11 minutes because they blocked off all the roads. When Vice President Cheney came into office, he told them that he didn't want the standard practice of all the streets closed for the vice president, you know, with the police motorcycle cops going ahead and cutting off the traffic and all that. He said, Washington traffic is bad enough. He's a relatively self-effacing guy. And, and don't do this for me, just take it normally. But on the September 12th trip, the Secret Service told him as we got to the limo, sir, you know, with all due respect to your request not to have streets blocked off for security reasons, we're blocking off the streets from today and from now on. And so we were flying down Massachusetts Avenue. And that trip down Massachusetts Avenue was to me one of the emotional times of 9-11, surprisingly, because as we were going down the street, people obviously knew who it was that was coming in this big motorcade. And people were getting out of their cars and cheering for him and giving him the thumbs up. People were coming over to the edge of the sidewalk to cheer him on. And I was used to protesters and people on the sides of the motorcades. Generally, they were holding placards. In fact, I think it was just a few days earlier, we were out west somewhere. And I remember a big placard that someone was protesting U.S. policy on human rights or something in Venezuela. And they would misspelled the word Venezuela. So I remember asking the vice president if he wanted to stop and go over and talk to this person to get some good advice about uh, foreign policy in Venezuela. So people along the sides were not uncommon, but cheering like that. And since I had not had much sleep and was in the midst of emotional events there myself, I could feel myself starting to choke up there. 
in the back of the limo. And I thought, this is probably not the time I should get overly emotional while I'm sitting here helping the vice president plot the beginning steps and then salvos and the war on terrorism. So I thought, I'm going to focus my eyes on the intelligence here, and I'm going to ignore the personal aspects of 9-11. 2,977 innocent people died that day. I did not have the luxury of thinking about those families, thinking about those people. So if it was a Washington Post article on the individuals, I would not read it. I would turn off the TV. There's a lady in my church whose husband died on the plane going into the Pentagon. When she got up at church to speak about it, I walked out. I just didn't think I had the luxury of being emotional. So a lot of intelligence officers have to look for ways, I think, to maintain their objectivity and not become emotional. So that was an emotional event for me. Then after 9-11, they decided that for continuity of government reasons, the president and vice president should not both be in Washington. In fact, I think President Bush decided that. It was more dangerous to be in Washington. He was the president. He would take the first watch in Washington. So that meant the vice president needed to leave town. So we quickly staged out of Camp David. Camp David is up in the mountains in Maryland. It's actually a military base, so it was secure. And so we all went there and needed to fly by helicopter from Camp David to Air Force Two, which was parked at Andrews Air Force Base. So we got on the helicopter. It was one of these big twin rotor military helicopters, and we were all nervously chatting about what did you bring? How many days clothes did you bring? Did you bring a charger for that, your laptop? Because I didn't bring mine, and kind of nervously chatting about all the things, and were we ready for deploying outside the Washington metropolitan area? And the halo flew us low from Camp David to Andrews right over the Pentagon. I'll never forget the view of the Pentagon with the smoke still rising. And that helicopter just got silent from then on. And the several-hour flight from Andrews out of town just was completely silent. And then that flight, I had a window seat in the second row. And I remember seeing a plane way off our wing flying parallel to us and being a little antsy about planes. That bothered me. And then I noticed it got closer and closer and closer to us. It got close, and it was a fighter. And I noticed then that several thousand feet below us, another plane went in the opposite direction. And after it passed us, the fighter went off our wing again. Obviously, it had come over. If that plane tried to strike Air Force Two, it was there to defend Air Force Two. And after that, the president and vice president always had an air cap over them. And uh, that was a little problematic in our first stop. We stopped out in the boonies. And the first day after we arrived there, I went into town to get food and other things we'd forgotten. And so on and driving back out of, toward where the vice president was, I saw this helicopter just circling and circling and circling. I went back and told the Secret Service, this is probably not a good idea to have a helicopter as an air cap. You're kind of drawing a bullseye around the vice president. And so they stopped using helicopters and just started using a jet fighter solely. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. 
With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. One of the things that I was thinking was, and this is a dual purpose question, like for that briefing for September the 12th, how does a PDB briefer bring it all together? You get all of these items, like say you get 50 items from 50 analysts and you sift through them and you say, here are the half a dozen ones that I want to present to the president. And then you maybe put them in bullet points or on a record card and you, you brief on them or something, or is it, I know it depends on the customer or is it like, writing an essay every single night where you have to cut and paste sections and write in your own words and yeah help us understand like a the process and then b the process through the vehicle of that september the 12th briefing how did you bring it all together yes that's as i alluded to earlier what you show the principle and choosing that and prioritizing that is one of the hardest parts of being a briefer because you come in with a stack three inches tall and you have to end up with uh, just 20 to 40 minutes worth of information. So generally, you prioritize it by putting what you consider to be the most important piece first. And so obvious on on September 12th, everything was going to be about Osama bin Laden and what was going on around the world. And so you had to prioritize on that particular topic because if they get interrupted if they have questions, whatever, you want to make sure they see the most important pieces. What I told my briefers was later when I managed all of the briefers was to prioritize things, show the entire piece, but do two things. Highlight the essential parts that you think they need to read. So if they don't have time to read the entire thing, they will at least read the highlights. Secondly, Orally summarize each piece as you give it to them. Here's a piece, Mr. Vice President, that shows that the Italians are doing this but not willing to do that. That way they'll at least get it orally because time is the most valuable thing in Washington. And they will often flip. And as they flip that page, because if they think it's not an important piece, you may want to tell them, this is a really important piece because... It says X, and you may want to take a look at the third paragraph that I've highlighted. So your job is to kind of prioritize their information and highlight the pieces or the parts of the pieces that you think will best maximize their time. I think one of the other questions that I have is, and this is something that we can address in other places because it could go off in all different types of directions, but in that process of summarizing either as a PDB brief or as a manager of analysts or of the people that give the PDB. I mean, it seems like from the outside anyway, that process of summarizing, it's necessary because there's only so many hours in the day and policymakers only have a limited bandwidth. But I've never done a PDB, but I've taught undergraduates or graduate students difficult material and I have to summarize it and boil it down and if they get it wrong in an essay because they've got a 
that don't have all the nuance and all the context and all the other stuff that can complicate three bullet points. The worst that can happen there is they get a C or a B minus or something. But for policymakers, the consequences are huge, right? I mean, it's if they take something away and they're like, oh, okay, that's what I need to take away from this. But if they're not really getting all the nuance and all the context, the consequences are big. So I just wonder if someone that has spent a long time analyzing and thinking about information and where it gets pushed to and how it gets boiled down or expanded out. Help us understand some of those dynamics, the summarizing versus losing the information. That's an excellent question. Packaging is really important. And the way the information is presented and the order in which it's presented is really important. Graphics and visuals are really important. Every time you can, you try and put something in a picture because it cognitively communicates more rapidly. A picture is worth a thousand words. And there's a reason that old saw is around. And the organization of the title, so it summarizes well in the first topic sentence. You want basically the topic sentence, the first sentence, the topic sentence of the piece of the topic sentences of each paragraph should convey 75% of what's in the piece. Because senior consumers are really not readers. They're skimmers. And they will look at a piece, they'll look at the title. Is this something I'm interested in? If they're not interested in it that day and don't see a value for it, they will flip. That's why you want to perhaps some call them back sometimes or give them the oral summary because you're they're very busy and they don't have time to read everything. And in fact, we had one principal consumer that would not read pieces if they had text that fell on the third page. And this is very important, Mr. Secretary. Well, this is not for me. It's on three pages. I don't have time for that. This was, you know, my undersecretaries can read this. My deputy assistant secretary, this obviously wasn't for me. So packaging was really important. In fact, watching the senior consumers digest information and managing their briefers, I came up with a conceptualization process to organize a piece and to organize a decision-making process. And I, since retiring from the government, I've helped several U.S. departments and agencies and some of our allies do that. So packaging to me is a real challenge and very interesting. And I'm still challenged and feel rewarded by doing it. Help us understand how you've done that conceptualization of the packaging that you just spoke about. So it's, it's organizing the information, prioritizing it. And generally, the best way to organize a piece is saying what's going on, why that's going on, what the implications are, and what might be done about it. Because that's the way people think. So if you get stuck in traffic tonight in a place where you usually haven't been stuck in traffic, the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, what's going on up here? And the second thing is, why is this going on? Is there a traffic accident? Is there road construction? It's usually not that. And then the third thing you think is, what does this mean? And do I need to call my significant other? I'm going to be late for dinner. Do I need to look for a different route? And that's what do I do about it? And so those four questions in that order are the way people naturally think. And so if you organize your piece, this is what's going on. This is why they're doing it. This is what the implications will be. Here's some things you might be able to do to counteract that. You're organizing your piece in the way that people most naturally absorb information. And so for a skimmer, they're more likely to catch it if it's packaged that way. And what kind of Vice President Cheney did you encounter on the morning of September the 12th, 2001? That's the first time that you had saw him since the attack. And what kind of vice president did you encounter? He had been kind of the point person and working on counter-terrorist issues. And he was always very serious and very businesslike. And kind of a surprise to me, he was kind of like he was 
every other day. He was focused. He was just asking questions. He was trying to get through as much as he could. Surprisingly, he was on September 12th like he was almost every other day. He's just a scary smart guy with a lot of ability to recall things. And for example, he, throughout the Bush presidency, every once in a while, he would say, now, I think you guys, or maybe it was DIA, did a paper back in 78, maybe it was the summer on this topic. Every time he could recall things from back when he was Secretary of Defense or on the Hill, every time they went and found that paper. And so just a scary, smart guy with a steel trap memory. Wow. Uh, Intimidating to try and brief. I was going to say, it sounds like a tough gig. (laughs) And so in the days and weeks afterwards, what kind of things were you doing? Were there any incidents that stick in your mind, a vignette, a conversation, something you encountered? So when we went out of town, we were basically working 24-7. And I often would brief him multiple times a day, give him follow-up or get things to his staff so they could get it to him. But we decided if you're going to go out of town, you might as well go to interesting places. And Vice President Cheney was an avid sportsman. He grew up out in Wyoming. And so a lot of those remote, undisclosed locations were duck hunting in Maryland, quail hunting in Georgia and Texas, pheasant hunting in South Dakota, fishing in Wyoming, and so on. Vice President Cheney would occasionally go out and go hunting. And he is an excellent shot. He had a double barrel shotgun that when he was shooting clay pigeons, he would always hit the clay pigeon with the first barrel. And then if there were any large pieces of the clay pigeon, he would hit it with the second barrel before it hit the ground. In fact, the Secret Service and I discussed that if we were ever attacked by Al-Qaeda, perhaps the best plan would be give the vice president a shotgun and let him defend himself. So we were around out of town And that was very useful for me because I kind of became one of them in terms of sitting down and having breakfast or at least lunch and dinner with the vice president and his staff and sitting on their meetings and so on. It gave me a much better feel for the way they looked at intelligence, the way they used intelligence. So similar to sitting with the principal when you give a briefing in the morning rather than just handing them something, actually working with them was very useful. The difficulty of getting too close to a policymaker is you don't want to lose your objectivity. You don't want to start pandering to their political agendas. You want to give balanced information. But it was very useful for me to go on those trips and travel with them. From what you picked up speaking to other people that had delivered the PDB, was he typical or was he atypical? Did other policymakers push back more or push back less or ask different types of questions. Yeah, give us a sense of how he could be placed in relation to other people that you have spoken to. He and President Bush asked lots of questions. They were avid and demanding intelligence consumers. And I once thought that they were running companies before they came to Washington. They ran a company and people weren't performing. They thought it was part of their duty to help those people perform. And they kind of brought that mentality to government. Okay, if this agency isn't delivering the intelligence ought to be delivering, it's my job to have them deliver. And so they would occasionally push for more intelligence, more insight, whatever. Both of them were demanding. And both of them were consumers at a time when the agency was looking to, I don't know exactly how to say this, I think reconfirm its role. This is something that the intelligence community doesn't talk much about. In the previous administration, the Clinton administration, we lost the president as a consumer. 
President Clinton stopped taking intelligence briefings from the intelligence community. That's not something that they want to talk about because it's embarrassing. When your job is to support the Oval Office and the Oval Office isn't getting your briefings from you, that's really embarrassing. And you can read elsewhere, oh, President Clinton continued to get the PDB. He continued to get it, but it was delivered to him directly or through a national security advisor. And I remember the game was, let's look at it when it comes back and look like if the pages have been folded so it looks like if he read it that day. And so the agency wanted to win back senior consumers. So when I was called up that Friday afternoon and was told, we want you to become a, a briefer for President, Vice President-elect Cheney, they told the briefer for President-elect Bush the same thing. We want you to hook them on intelligence. Do everything you can to make sure you provide a service to them that they see as essential. Because they don't have to take an intelligence briefing. There's no law that says they have to take intelligence. And if you don't provide them intelligence, then you'll get off their schedule. The president's and vice president's schedules and days are planned in five-minute increments. And they don't have a lot of extra time. And so our goal was, particularly early on in Bush and Cheney, administration to try and hook them on intelligence. And I'm not blaming President Clinton for stopping getting the briefings. I think part of that was our fault as an intelligence community ourselves. I was chief of the African division during four years of his term. And I prided myself and my unit. And we produced more PDBs per capita than any other element of the intelligence community. Did he care about all those? No, not necessarily. But we thought they were interesting. And so at their worst, a collector collects things that are interesting to them and that are easy to collect. At their worst, an analyst produces things that are easy to understand and that are of interest to them. And that doesn't work very well with the senior consumer. And so we really tried hard with Vice President-elect Cheney and with President Bush to provide them things that would really be worth their time that would help them on the tough decisions that they had to warn them on things they thought might be coming up. So it was an interesting time for the agency to try to win back the White House, both the president and vice president. Vice President Gore in the Clinton administration did remain an avid consumer of intelligence and took daily briefings. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, when you were talking about President Clinton there, it reminded me of that joke about the guy that landed the plane in the White House grounds. And the joke was that that was the director of James Wilson <laughs> trying to get some FaceTime with the president, right? <laughs> Just briefly, what's like the chain of command like for a presidential daily briefer? Like, who do you report to? When I started, there were no managers for the briefers. They took relatively senior officers, unusually senior officers, because we wanted to win back the senior consumers, and said, it's your job to support them. So you will decide what they see. You can accept or reject what we sent you. And that was unusual for that, that era. But a couple of years into the administration, they decided that we they probably did need somebody to manage the briefers, the production, the planning, the delivery of it. And so I was tapped, unfortunately, to do that. But knowing what the vice president and president were looking at, it was a e relatively easy role to go in. So I tried to provide more uniformity in directing the planning and production of the PDB. And, and planning the PDB, a lot of that is done by the local levels because it's every analyst's job to decide what should my consumers be asking. The job of an intelligence analyst is not necessarily just to answer the questions consumers ask. A good analyst answers the questions they ought to be asking 
but haven't thought to ask, or may never think to ask. That's part of warning. That's part of innovation in terms of telling them things they won't think about otherwise. So they will su submit things up there. So as the chief of PASS, which, which is my position, chief of the president's analytics support staff, I manage the briefers and the planning and production of the book, then that would go to a deputy director or one of a few people who was a senior reviewer. And I was also one of the senior re reviewers. You would sign off on the pieces before they went down to the president. Yeah, so the director would sit in and now the director of national intelligence sits in, but they don't always chop off on the book. And what is your communication like with the person that's giving the PDB to the president? Is that like a, a daily communication? I believe it was Mike Morrell at the time. Was right. Is that something like the person that's briefing the president and the vice president, they regularly sync up or compare notes? Yeah. Michael was the other unfortunate soul who was called up that Friday afternoon. and, and oh, He was? You started the same day? Uh, yes. Wow. Okay. Asked if, he, if he would brief uh, President-elect Bush. And so Michael and I would come in and we would independently go through all of the pieces that were submitted for the president and vice president and any other traffic. And then before we went downtown, we always touched base and gave comments about the pieces. Well, I think the difficulty with this piece is X. It's not only the pieces you have, but you also have background notes. The analysts will provide you another document that goes with it that provides more context. And so what you want to do is get from the analysts all the answers you think your principal is going to need for the questions they're likely to ask. And so sometimes you anticipate different questions from President Bush than you were going to get from Vice President Cheney and so on. So we would, we'd always compare notes in terms of what we were going to present. I had the advantage that I had 40 minutes with the Vice President and he only had 30 minutes with the president. So I could actually show the vice president more. But we always touched base to make sure that the vice president saw everything the president was going to see, because that's what the president had asked for, plus some extra things that would be of use to the vice president. On weekends, I would go over basically things that we had missed during the week that I thought the vice president should see. So sometimes we would go hour, hour and a half on Saturdays to try and catch up from the week. Just briefly, getting a position as a presidential daily briefer, is that after that, is that a, seen as a, I'm assuming it's seen as a career boost? How does that shake out in terms of your career? Well, assuming you not screw up. <laughs> assuming that, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I used to tell my uh, new briefers when they were arriving that this is a great job. You get a chance to blow your career and the agency's reputation every day. But generally, you become known then and hopefully trusted if you didn't screw up. So after I got to know the vice presidents and his priorities and the way he and the president digested intelligence, I then managed the PDB. And then knowing what the president was looking for in counterterrorism, I was directed to manage counterterrorism analysis for four years. And the analysis in the counterterrorist center also supported operations and targeting and so on. So knowing analysis and, and operations together, then I was asked by the DNI to chair the National Intelligence Collection Board and, and to stand up the National Intelligence Coordination Center, which no longer exists, but it's, it was the first nationwide attempt to coordinate all the collection and across all the organizations so we could act more efficiently and make sure it was all driven by the needs of analysts, which were driven by the needs of consumers. So basically one job kind of led to another. And I didn't apply for any of those jobs. Uh, it was just once you've done something, then they, well, here's, here's a sucker who is willing to work hard and long hours without going home on weekends. Uh, 
let's have him do that. And just one final question on the PDB briefer more generally. Um, how much does the delivery of the product depend on that variable of the briefer? Obviously, you delivered PDBs, Mike Morell delivered PDBs. Is the consumer going to end up with more or less the same product, regardless of who it is? Or is it kind of really important that there's someone there that that can bring it all together and then knows what they're doing? I guess my question is, could me or Memphis be trained up and do one of those fake it for TV type thing? We're going to train this guy up and pass him off as a intelligence officer who's going to brief the president or yeah, help us understand the variable that is the PDB briefer? For seminal pieces, the analysts would actually come up and sometimes a team of analysts and brief the briefers. And I always like that, particularly if they do it the day before, because I could ask all of the questions of the experts that I thought the vice president was likely to ask. And even if they didn't come up to brief all the briefers, if it was a piece that I thought the vice president would engage in, I would call up or go down and visit the authors to ask them to make sure I understood what it was. So between that oral exchange with them, their written background note, which is going to be longer than the piece itself, the pieces tend to be fairly short, page, page and a half, because they don't have a lot of time. And so you read the four or five page background note that goes into more depth about the sources, about the implications and so on. And then you talk to them on specific pieces. So if it's a seminal piece, all the briefers will have talked to the analysts and should all have exactly the same message. Other times, the briefer for the Secretary of Defense may have a slightly different presentation of the piece than the briefer of the Secretary of State because it's got political and military facets to it, and they need to present it differently. That's interesting. But if you don't produce well, generally the feedback comes back, and sometimes, just to be honest, the principals kind of ask for different briefers. So let's keep walking forward with the, the days, and week af- days and weeks afterwards. What was it like to be the person that was briefing the vice president in the run-up to war? It was difficult because there were a lot of moving parts going on with the war on terror, what our allies were doing, and what our enemies were doing. And the, the war against terrorism really was an, a global coalition. And working with a lot of countries who are traditionally not allied with us, we found common ground on terrorism. And uh, in terms of going to into Afghanistan, there were also a lot of moving parts in terms of the military part, the making diplomatic initiatives and entrees in other governments that were trying to get them allied and be on their side. And often before a major engagement, there would be a high-level, if not trip, initiative to try and get people on board. So, for example, after 9-11, I went the vice president to 12 countries in 10 days, and he was trying to gather the coalition to fight the war against terrorism. Same thing was done on Afghanistan and before going into Iraq. And it was difficult because there was a lot of dissension within the government about what to do, what not to do. And as a briefer, the dissension doesn't make any difference. You basically answer their questions and try and push them to get the answers that they want. You push the people, the analysts and the collectors, to get the information that the consumers want. So wartime is particularly difficult because things move so quickly. And you get a lot of U.S. military 
engagement. And so the military knows things that you don't necessarily know. And so you have to make kind of informal connections with people in the Pentagon or with the, the, the command to inform you so you can inform the president, vice president, because the military has channels, but it's often not as good as the intelligence channel. So if your job is to inform them in making decisions, as I said earlier, it's sometimes useful to know what the U.S. government itself is doing. And that's the hard part of being a briefer. And so one of the things I would do is I would start every day in the Afghanistan war showing vice president clips of U.S. military operations, uh, particularly striking terrorists. I used to call it the, the greatest hits. And uh, he liked that because it gave him an idea of where we were doing, how the war was progressing and so on, and then moved to the larger picture. And uh, later, there were two briefers for the president after Mike Morrell left. And after I left being the vice president, the two briefers replaced us because it's very difficult to always travel with them. And if they want a briefing seven days a week, they get a briefing seven days a week. And so they would get to two briefers. I wanted to do it myself because that way I was always with him. I knew what his response was to every piece, and I just thought it was more efficient. Went from being the briefer to managing the briefers. As I understand it, the setting up that position as the manager of the briefers, you're setting that up from nothing because it doesn't exist previously. What are the things where you're like, this is something we need to get a handle on, or here's my main objectives, or here are the sorts of things I think we need to do. Help us understand setting up that enterprise. I wanted to pay more attention to the planning of pieces and to go for a calendar for two weeks out so we would have a good idea to be able to know when a piece was coming from an office or to request a piece from an office. So we know if the president is traveling in three weeks, we're going to have a series of pieces. And we want to make sure that we deliver them on time and not too early, not too late. I mean, everybody knows that you can deliver a piece too late. You can also deliver a piece too early for a senior consumer if they haven't focused on it yet. Oh, that's two weeks from now. It's going to change. I don't have time for that today. So trying to sync the intelligence production of the analysis, which requires collection before that, getting all of those wheels moving in advance required more planning than I think we'd been doing. And also it was making sure that we had picked the right people and they did have the right mesh with their consumers. And you didn't have to like their policies. You didn't have to, uh, to like necessarily all the decisions they were making. But if you didn't like them, that was not a good marriage because you were putting your personal life on hold to do this job. And we needed people who were totally devoted to making sure they were providing wise intelligence. And did you ever wear your cowboy boots when you when you briefed the vice president? I did not. I did not. <laughs> but he wore them a few times. He, I'm he often wore yeah. cowboy boots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think another one of the things that interests me is, I don't know how it normally works, but do you say, do you know what, Hammond, you're going to be the briefer, but we're not going to announce it, and we're going to put you in there for a week, and if the president doesn't like you, we're going to quietly move you on and put someone else in or or is it just you're getting this person and this is the way it's going to be or yeah generally briefers were selected by a senior intelligence community official but there were a few vice president cheney was one of the exceptions he wanted to, to preview his briefers at least after he accepted me but then after me he wanted to always 
preview is briefers after that. So every year or so, generally, they would change briefers for all the principals, and uh, not at the same time, but after about a year, it was no longer fun to do, as I said earlier. And so they would basically sometimes have them interview with the vice president, and then he would pick the one that he wanted. And I never thought about this before. Your vantage point is fascinating because you're the briefer to the vice president during 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan breaking out. But then you oversee the briefers after that. So you're kind of at the crossroads of all of the information that's going to all of the most important policymakers and decision makers in the country. But is that something you've ever spoke about before? No, not a lot. Because the policy side, even when you were doing it, you didn't want to say an awful lot about it. In fact, there would be things that the vice president would tell me. Well, now we're considering doing this. And he was telling me that. So I would guide intelligence on those topics to him and provide more insight on that. But I couldn't go back and tell the director of central intelligence that because that's a policy initiative. And part of the deal, if you want to gain the trust of your principal, is you don't talk about their policies, the, the policies that they're thinking about adopting. So the policy side was something we tried not to talk about, even within the intelligence community. But yeah, as, as a briefer, as a producing the PDB, you saw everything. And in fact, the calendar of the PDB pieces we had as a controlled compartmented document. Because basically, if you read a few weeks of the PDB calendar of what the president was seeing, you knew what the White House's agenda was around the globe. And how long did you manage the PDB for, you know, when you stop being a briefer yourself and then you're managing the unit and setting it up. How long was that? That was about a year and a half, too. And and so half. my day switched to going from 8 in the morning till midnight or so. I put the book to bed. And the hours were about the same, just much later in the day. In fact, one time, the briefer for Secretary of State, Colin Powell, got sick. And they didn't get sick until late in the evening. And I, I was head of the PDB at the time and thought, oh, I briefed before and I know all everything that's in the book because I put it together and edited it and so on. So it's not a big deal. I will just go home, shower, come back and brief Secretary Powell. I guess there must be a lot of stuff inside your head that you maybe hear people talking about 9-11 or the war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and you must think to yourself, I've got some stuff that you don't know that's kind of really interesting and provides additional information. Just as a human being, I guess, like how do you keep control of that information? I mean, I think we've all had that experience of you tell your wife or your husband something as if they've never heard it before and they say to you, you've told me this three times before. Or you maybe say something that you're not meant to say, you know, someone confided in you a secret and you swore you'd take it to the grave and then you unwittingly told it to someone else. As a human being, how do you put up guardrails for the information that's not meant to go anywhere else? I think just practice. And that's one of the things that led you to being selected as a briefer was you proved over time that you disciplined yourself to remember what was a secret and what wasn't. And it's basically just always remembering where that information came from. And yeah, you read a lot of things then and even today and see them in movies, on TV and documentaries and so on that you know are false because you were there. 
but there's just nothing you can do about that. There's, uh, history is not perfect. <laughs> Moving on to the period after that, how do you think that these events, 9-11, the war on terror, how do you think it affected the agency that you worked for? So here we're talking about the Central Intelligence Agency or the intelligence community more generally. Help us take stock of how that affected the IC. I think the agency and the intelligence community moved very quickly to go to a war footing. In fact, one of the deputy directors that day said, the world has changed today and it's never going to be the same and we need to change quickly. And so they started moving people, and in some cases units, that day to move toward the fight against terrorism. And for a lot of people, that was good because they wanted to be in the fight. For some people, quite frankly, personally, it was a disappointment. If you were an expert on, say, Japan's economy because you got your PhD in that and you'd written two books in that and you went to graduate school in Japan and so on, or to all of a sudden be moved to doing terrorist finances, and that was not that exciting. But everybody more or less got on board. And from putting people out on the field in Afghanistan to support the Northern Alliance to moving analysts in Washington to creating targeters, I think they did a great job. For a lot of people, there was a lot of stress associated with that. The, the guys in the field, you know, not knowing exactly who was their friend and who was not their friend in Afghanistan. And they, they literally risked their lives every day. And I was also surprised, even back here in Washington, the stress on the analysts. As I later managed counterterrorism analysts, I had folks with ulcers, people who had nightmares, people who had their arms shaking and so on from the stress. Because as you sit there and read the transcripts or listen to the transcripts of the terrorists and look at their plots and trying to figure out people's lives are at stake. And you take that personally. And it was very stressful. In fact, once I pulled together a number of my analysts, in fact, probably too many to take offline at once for them to talk a bunch of, to a bunch of shrinks. I had the shrinks come in and say, psychologically, these are ways that you can manage some of this pressure. And all the people I took offline that day took a test in terms of measuring stress. And the psychologist said, yes, we, we average the stress test that we gave you. And for the average analyst in this room, you're at about the stress level one would expect someone going through a messy divorce. And they all kind of look at each other. Wow, I don't feel that stress. Well, that's because you've been feeling it every day. And so just looking for ways for the managers to manage that stress so it didn't we didn't lose people because we were basically burning out our expertise about as fast as we were building it. And they didn't lose objectivity and become too emotional, all those things. We took a number of steps, basically ordering people to go home at night sometimes, ordering them to take a day off, looking for ways to make sure that, that operationally and analytically we could continue this for the long run. Because we started with a very small core of people who really understood terrorism analysis and operations. Just thinking back, like after 9-11, there was lots of talk about this is the new way of war, this is the new way of doing things. The major threats now are going to be the new security challenges, terrorism, climate change, all those sorts of things. But now we seem to be shifting back to, well, actually Russia and China and great powers are important, so... Maybe all of that kind of new security challenges stuff was a bit of a, not a distraction, but the whole thing has been reset. Do you get that sense for the intelligence community? It was all about great powers. Okay, it's actually about tribes and 
being off in far-flung corners of the world, okay, now that's over and now it's back to great powers. Is that your your sense for the agency analytically? Yeah, I think the war on terrorism, because it was so tactical and was so intelligence-focused, that was hopefully an unusual period of history for the intelligence community, to be that tactical. And now talking to my colleagues still back in the intelligence world, yeah, they're moving toward more nation-state level analysis and and issues. But that's part of the difficulty of being a global service is basically you have to support everything. And so part of the game as a manager there is betting on the future in terms of where you need to have the expertise now, where you're going to have to be developing it for the future. But yeah, I do sense that shift. It's interesting. Sometimes I've thought about this almost like being a manager at CIA. It's almost like managing a big portfolio where you're investing in certain stocks and and there's no guarantees about where anything's going, but you're trying to get as many indicators as you can that suggest that maybe this is the way things are going to go and you're trying to make sure that your fund grows in profitable ways. A lot of kind of reading between the lines or trying to anticipate things. I mean, that's that must be so difficult with you know, the CIA, like strategic intelligence, shift into this very tactical war. And then, okay, we need to go back to strategic intelligence again. Um, help us understand that as someone that's been through the system. It's very difficult in analysis to make those investments. It's even more so having managed collection at the national level. It's even for, more so for collectors, because it takes a long time to re- cultivate and recruit a human asset. Just don't turn them off and on. And to have bugs in the right places to hear the right conversations, to have satellites in the right places with the right sensors to find things. So there are a lot of people who are looking over the horizon. These are today's issues, but what are tomorrow's? And how will we be ready for those? Because I think that's part of the intelligence community's job. President Reagan, when he left office, came out to Langley to thank the intelligence community for all the support. And he used a phrase that stuck with me when he said, I consider you the tripwire of American defense. And in order to be that tripwire, you're going to be the first person to see what's coming. And so that's looking over the horizon. So they talk about national intelligence priorities and they try and draw those up. Those are useful for today and a little bit for resource planning. But good managers really are visionaries looking at what will the next issue be, even for the next administration, because each administration comes in and they've got a different set of agendas, just different agenda, rather different policy agenda, which will require different intelligence on different topics, which is going to require different intelligence sources. So it's always a game that you trying to find things that the other countries are trying to hide because they see things coming in a new administration, then we're going to have different priorities. And it's a very difficult business. And very small question here. How do you think it affected the country? How do you think it affected the United States? Or how do you think it affected America's role in the world? I guess, Andrew, maybe I'm looking for a silver lining on a very big, dark cloud here. But I do think 9-11 brought us together as a nation. And for one brief, shining moment, we all had a singular goal and a singular focus. And we got a lot done. 
I mean, a lot done because everybody in the U.S. government, by and large, was had the same goals. There were a few people, I think, that were building personal or organizational empires and a few things that were done just to say they, the U.S. government was doing something. But those were pretty few and far between. Everybody was on the same sheet of music. And there, for a period of time, we really were red, white, and blue, not just red and blue. I've heard you mention previously about America losing its innocence. Yeah, Could you speak I, a little bit more about that? Uh, just more philosophically, perhaps. I do think that 9-11 brought America into what the rest of the world is already fighting. Uh, that's terrorism. Traveling around the world to see liaison services before 9-11, uh, it amazed me to see guards, uh, policemen standing in front of police stations with submachine guns to protect the police station or soldiers with dogs patrolling civilian airports because of terrorism. And we didn't have to deal with any of that before 9-11. So in one sense, it kind of brought us in to the rest of the world. And in one sense, I think we kind of lost our innocence, kind of the same way Pearl Harbor brought us into World War II and we lost our innocence there. And maybe there was some value to that. Since World War II, we've had a low threshold for people becoming dictators like Hitler. And since World War II, we've had a low threshold for terrorism. And I am amazed, quite frankly, that we haven't been struck again, to be blunt. When I mean, you saw the, the zeal and the, the hundreds of people pledging their lives to attack the United States, they are motivated. They were exceptionally motivated to strike the United States. And I am surprised that they have not been successful. As the old saw goes, the terrorists only have to get lucky once, whereas the intelligence community has to be perfect every time. And, you know, I mean, I'm surprised. There's a lot of dedication among the United States intelligence and military folks. There's a lot of dedication in our allied services. You know, we're not that good in terms of God blessing America, in terms of just the ability to have gone nearly 20 years without another major terrorism strike, I'm surprised. Hmm. We've touched on what I'm sure are some rather painful memories for you. Is there, just in closing, is there anything that you think our listeners would find quite interesting? Well, they're interesting to me because they happen to me. I'm not sure the listeners will find them interesting. But I think a couple of stories come to mind. One is uh, dodging a bullet in Iraq, and the other one is dodging a mark from the vice president here. When the Iraq war started, I had numerous analysts over there going after al-Qaeda in Iraq. So I went over one Christmas to thank them for being there and what they were doing, and also to thank them for being out there doing it rather than being with their families on Christmas. And I was talking to them one night and having dinner, and gunfire started erupting all over Baghdad. And we were used to hearing little firefights here and there, and we were used to having a mortar shell drop in every now and then. But this was like citywide. So, oh my gosh, there must be a coordinated attack going on or something big is happening. So over our communications devices, they cracked. Seat cover, seat cover immediately. So we all dove away from the table. I dove in one direction because I was on one side of the table toward one bunker. They dove toward another bunker. I got in my bunker and I recognized I need to call back in to let them know I was okay because they reassured me that I was senior enough that if I called back in, they wouldn't send out security teams to track me down and rescue me. 
So I was safe in the bunker and I, I, I couldn't get my device to work. It wouldn't transmit out of the bunker. So I talked to all the other people there. They had different devices. They didn't know who I was calling. So, so what do I do here? Well, one of my less brilliant moves, I decided I better get out of the bunker to call in because I don't want these guys going out in the middle of a citywide firefight to try and come rescue me when I'm actually safe. So I got outside and called in to let them know I was safe. Right about the time I was finishing this very short conversation, bullet ricocheted off a wall about three feet from my head, head high, as I dove back into the bunker. Well, eventually, after a few minutes, the fighting stopped and we were given the all-clear signal we could get out. What had happened was that evidently there had been a very close and important soccer match that the Iraqi national team had just won. So every faction, everybody with a firearm throughout Baghdad emptied their firearm in the air and continued to reload and fired for, new, for several minutes, like 10 minutes, everyone was firing up into the air. Well, what goes up must come down. So all these tens of thousands of rounds of bullets were falling back on the city. That's what it hit the wall near me. I have no idea how many people and goats died in Baghdad that night from all of this lead coming back down. But to me, that would have been the worst time to have gotten shot. I'd been on the lead end of a gun a couple of other times before, but that one would have been very embarrassing. Riding the cable back to headquarters, um, explaining what happened. <laughs> well, you see, headquarters, I was in the bunker, but I had to get out into the gunfire to let them know I was safe. And I got hit by celebratory gunfire from a soccer game. I would have never traveled for the CIA again. The other time was not as deadly, but more embarrassing. As I said, I briefed Vice President Cheney in the Vice President's mansion. Very nice mansion, three floors down on the Naval Observatory. And he would always come down from the top two floors where they lived. And I was his first appointment of the day. He liked to be brief in the Florida room, which I guess from his vantage point was nice. It's on the east side. The, the sun comes up. You can see it coming over the flower gardens. and Very nice. But as a venue for intelligence briefing, I did not like it. If you can imagine sitting there, Andrew, on a sofa with the nation's most sensitive secrets on the coffee table in front of you, surrounded by glass on three sides. I mean, occasionally two feet behind me on the other side of that glass would walk a Secret Service agent or a gardener, who knows who, and at the end of the lawn over what I considered a fairly short fence was Massachusetts Avenue with all of its hustle and bustle. And I was just always concerned about what was going on behind me. So one day, sitting there waiting for him to come down, as the Secret Service always let me in early, and in walks this little puppy. I'd never seen this little puppy before. And the little puppy was coming over to me and was trying to come up over the coffee table rather than around it. Well, you know, two intelligence briefing books, fresh flowers with water. Even I can see this was a disaster waiting to happen. This little puppy, I grabbed it, stood up and grabbed it before it or I spilled the, the water on the intelligence briefing books. What I didn't know was the Cheneys had gone out the night before and purchased this little puppy. It spent the night in their bedroom. So when he opened the door and was coming down, the puppy was running in front of him. I didn't see him. I only saw the puppy. So as I was standing up to grab the puppy, he sticks his head in the, the Florida room door and yells, get down, Dave. So I ducked, assuming bin Laden with an AK-47 was on the other side of the, the glass wall. And I looked up and he was just laughing. And he said, dog's named Dave, too. I named him after you. <laughs> and if you could choose one object to be a lens through which we could enter into the story of Dave Terry, what object would it be? I guess the object that comes to mind was a big canvas bag 
with its white bag with the blue vice presidential seal that we were all issued shortly after 9-11 to basically put our office supplies in as we move from one remote disclosed, undisclosed location to another. That was kind of our portable office. And uh, to me, it kind of symbolized it's kind of a simple thing, but we need to get to working and we need to keep working and do whatever it, is, it takes to get the job done. And that just kind of symbolized to me the whole spirit of 9-11 and moving out in the war on terror. That bag actually is in the display case on the ground floor of CIA headquarters. And have you ever been up to New York to look at Ground Zero? Interesting question. When Vice President Cheney went up there to speak after 9-11, I stayed back at a security checkpoint because I was trying to shield myself from the personal side just to remain emotionally objective. And so I did not go then. Later, when I managed counterterrorism analysis, I did go up there. It was touching for me then. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. It's been fascinating to hear your story. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.